Our reading today is Psalm 127, if you want to turn with me. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, we're reading that, and <laughs> Tom whispered to me, he's like, have fun with that. Like, Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Um, uh, if, you're, if you're new here, uh, you're very welcome. Uh, my name's Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. So um, open your Bibles to Psalm 127, if you haven't yet, uh, or the 127th Psalm, whichever you'd like to, to say. Um, if you... Uh, if you are part of the family here, uh, you'll be, should warm your heart to know that right now Lucas is over at Village South preaching, um, first, first time preaching in uh, four months, um, so um, be praying for him, be praying for his voice that holds up, um, he'll be sipping a lot of water, but uh, um, uh, looking forward to having him back, uh, I'm sure you'll, he'll hear, but his trip to California was really good uh, for him, uh, I think it's really good for him physically. Really good for him spiritually uh, and mentally. Um, looking forward to kind of unpacking what that means for us as a church. Um, looking forward to just having him back. Uh, miss him. So um, he's just, he'll slowly kind of make his way back in, kind of ramp his way back in. It'll be a while before he's back full time. But uh, um, so until then, you're, you're still stuck with hearing a good bit of me. Sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, we are uh, just con- continuing to make our way through these uh, collection of songs called the Psalms of Ascent. Um, Psalm 127 is the halfway point. Uh, there's 15, uh, 15 of them. This is the, the eighth one right in the middle. Um, you'll notice that this psalm sounds and feels a lot different than the songs we've been looking at over the past couple weeks. So over the past two weeks, we looked at Psalm 123 and Psalm 126. Uh, which are both community laments. Uh, so in those laments, the, the pilgrims really open up their hearts. Uh, they really just kind of bear it all uh, before the Lord. They're really honest with their present circumstances. Uh, they're very honest with their, their need for the Lord, this cry for mercy, a cry for, for deliverance, uh, for him to, to intervene in their lives and bring about restoration and revival like we saw last week. And the psalm today is a lot different than those lament psalms, uh, mainly because it's not a lament psalm. So it's a wisdom psalm. It's a different, different type of literature. Um, so wisdom psalms aren't necessarily a cry for help. Rather, they provide us with instruction on right living and, and right faith. Uh, so they, they says, live your life in this, in this way. Um, and if I'm honest... A lot of you might be like me in this. I prefer the laments. I, I, I prefer those letting, let, just spilling it all out there. 
a place to, to be honest with the Lord, to state your complaint, um, to, to cry out for him, and to know that the Lord hears those cries. And, and there's 100% a time for that. Uh, there, there, there's lots of laments in the Bible. There's an entire book dedicated just to lamenting and, and, and know that the Lord wants to hear those laments of yours. They, he wants to hear your cries. Um, don't ever feel like you have to hold back on being honest with your father. Um, but also know that there's a time to stop speaking and to listen. Uh, there's a time for receiving instruction um, and there's a, obviously a lot of that in the Bible as well. There's, there's entire books dedicated to that for God to let us know what we were created for, how we're meant to, to be living. So this is why we need the entire Bible, don't we? Where we take every bit of it uh, seriously because it's our, in order for us to know God, this is our final authority in that. For us to know ourselves, for us to know how we are to walk uh, in light of Him so that we can glorify Him and so that we can live, lives, live our lives to the full. Um, two things to note. Firstly, wisdom literature is very much suited to worshipful pilgrims. Uh, so what I mean by that, remember the context of these songs. Uh, these are pilgrim songs. They're, uh, these are the people of God, and they're on a journey. They're, they're making their way from a long way away to Jerusalem. They're, they're ascending uh, to Zion. And they're, they're making this journey for one reason, and that's to gather with the people of God to worship. And so the Lord has he's instructed his people to gather together um, as his people to, for these annual worship festivals. And, and the faithful ones of Israel obeyed him in this. So they would, they would bring their families, they would bring as many people from their villages as possible on this journey uh, to Zion, to where the temple is, to where God's dwelling place was at the time. And they would do this for one reason, that's to gather to worship. So these are worshipful pilgrims, and wisdom literature, like this psalm, was so important to them, because in the Old Testament, what you see is, is faithfulness to God in everyday life, and vitality in worship, which is their goal for their journey, go hand in hand. So faithfulness to God in everyday life, walking in His ways, in His wisdom, if you want to be able to do that, well, then you need the wisdom literature. You need his instruction. And you see all throughout the Old Testament how, how faithfulness to God in everyday life and, and is so connected with, with vitality in worship. Um, and you see it all throughout the Scripture. Uh, read Psalm 111 sometime. Read Psalm 119 sometime. These are both great examples of this, where you see that a heart full of worship, a heart full of love for the Lord of gratitude for what he's done for us is so connected with delighting in his law, with knowing his precepts. So if you want to be a good, worshipful pilgrim, well, then you need to be connected with wisdom literature. That's why this psalm is, is so important and possibly why it's at the dead center of this collection of songs. Uh, secondly, notice that it's, it's a psalm of Solomon. Uh, which is interesting because remember, they are making their way to the temple, and, and Solomon's the one who is tasked with building the temple. Um, and if you imagine the scene, um, and what I, what I don't want you to imagine is they're ascending to just a, a normal temple, a normal building. Um, this was arguably the most uh, impressive building in the world at the time. 
Uh, so people from all over the world would, would come to Jerusalem just to, to see the jaw-dropping beauty of this place. Uh, the doors and the walls were overlaid with gold, uh, jewels, uh, fine linen, uh, the cherubim, the palm trees, the flowers, all overlaid with gold. It was absolutely stunning. Uh, but this psalm, they're singing as they're making their way up to this stunning place, is saying, apart from God, it's just a structure. Um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So the implication here is, as you go to this place to, to look at Solomon's temple, don't stand in awe of Solomon. He's saying that this wonderful place, unless God is the one behind it, it would be meaningless. It's just another building that will crumble. He's saying this is not about my greatness, but the greatness of the God that we serve. Uh, Phil Newton, he's a pastor in Tennessee, spoke of Psalm 127 as being about the reordering of your world, which is really the point of of wisdom literature in general. The wisdom literature calls us to evaluate ourselves to, uh, and then adjust our lives to, to reorder them in this way so that we are walking in the Lord's ways. Uh, this, this reordering of your world, reordering of your life, uh, which really resonated with me as I, as I read this psalm because what you see, uh, these themes in Psalm 127, uh, this theme of working, uh, of building, you have a theme of, of security, of watching over, of guarding the city, of, of caretaking. Uh, you have a, city, uh, a theme of multiplication, of having children, of growing families. All these themes should remind you, it reminded me of another bit in Scripture back in Genesis 1, uh, verse 28. And I'm talking about the, the cultural mandate, the creation mandate for, for humankind. Um, go ahead and turn over to Genesis 1 if you, if you have your Bibles there. Um, if you don't know what the cultural mandate is, um, obviously Genesis 1 is, is the creation story. It's the story of God creating the world and filling the world. And you get to day 6 in Genesis 1, and in verse 26, God creates man in his image after his likeness. Uh, so he does this, uh, male and female, he creates them, uh, and then he goes on to bless them and give them this mandate. He creates them and he blesses them and he says, now this is what I've created you for. This is what I want you to do. This is your purpose. And in verse 28, it's the first thing God says to, to Adam and Eve. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's God's mandate for, for humankind, uh, to be fruitful, to, to multiply, to fill the earth, have babies, make families, fill it up with my image. And, and God says, I also want you to subdue it, to, to, to bring it under control, uh, to have dominion over it. Uh, it means we were, we were created uh, to rule over the earth as his representatives, as his vice regents. That's our mandate in the world. We, we represent God in ruling on earth. He created us to, to do his, his work. Okay, we're, we're originally created to be a royal priesthood. So you have that language in, in 1 Peter. Uh, that's not just like a, a, God's like, okay, well, it all didn't work out, and eventually I'll make the church, and I'll make them a royal priesthood. No, that's, that's the original intention for us. 
So God gave humans alone this royal and priestly status when he created us in his image. And we're, we're created to represent him here on earth, to rule it, to have dominion, to subdue it, to fill it, to multiply, and to do all these things on his account in representation of him. And here's the thing about a representative or a vice regent of a king is they, they are sent out to do the work of the king. So, so they do work, but they do it on behalf of the king. This means that, that they carry out his plans, but they carry them out for his glory and, and with his strength, with the backing of his might, of his power. So a vice regent, without the backing of the king, well, they're just a normal person. They're, they have no royal status. They're just a chump working. But when he's, he's working not for his purposes and glory, but for the king's, well, then he has power. He's powerful because, in a way, it's the king working through him. It's, it's, it's the king backing him with his strength, with his might. You see, there's, there's a proper order to the way this representative works. There's an order to the motivations of his work. And for us, it's the same. We were created to rule on earth on God's behalf. And we're meant to do this for his glory and with his strength, not ours. And, and notice in verse 29 of Genesis 1, immediately after he gives them this mandate, go out here and do all of these things, multiply, subdue, have dominion, he immediately says that I'm the one that's even going to give you the strength to do it. And so he said, behold, I give you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, every, every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So he starts right away. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's going to even give you the sustenance to do these things. And then you keep reading, and you get to chapter 3, and you get to the fall, where the serpent comes, and he tempts Eve to, to disobey God by eating of the one tree that, that God told them not to eat from. And, and he tempted them by, by saying, if you eat of this tree, then you're going to be like God. And, and they... Which is ironic because they were created in his image. They were already like God, his representatives. But they give in to this temptation, which is both an act of disobedience and it's an act of treachery because they are his representatives working on his behalf. And, and the result of the fall is the disorder of creation, the, the disorder of that mandate, the, the order that we're meant to work in. So we're meant to work as representatives of God, working for his glory in obedience to him. So the moment that Adam and Eve decided to, to follow directions from the creation rather than the creator, then that order was broken. And we began to work for our glory, not his. We began to work by our own strength. We don't need his. Does that make sense, that order of the mandate that we're supposed to work in, how that was broken? And Psalm 127 is telling us that we need to reorder our lives. We need to fulfill that mandate. That we need to work, have dominion, subdue, multiply, but for his glory and, and by his strength, not ours. Do it like you were created to do. Uh, Psalm 119.73 uh, says, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Uh, Augustine says something similar. He says, you have made us for yourself 
and we're restless until we find our rest in you. And if we really believed that, that it's, that it's his hands who made us and fashioned us, then, then we'd realize that the only way that our lives have any meaning and purpose is if we bring our focal point back to our creator, back to the original intention. And Psalm 127 is saying that the temptation is to shift your focal point off of God to shift it off of representing him, off of working for his glory and, and, and by his strength, and to focus it on us, to focus it on the creation rather than the creator. But the psalmist in 127 says that, that life is vain apart from the Lord. It's, it's pointless. It's, it's meaningless. All you're building, all you're watching over, it's, it's pointless apart from him. And because we tend to think that the measure of a good life is what we achieve in life, what we, what we accumulate in life. But the psalmist is telling us that, that real life actually consists of knowing who made us and living for his glory alone. We, we fulfill that mandate when we work for him before his glory and by his strength, not ours. And Notice that the psalmist is writing in the real world. So he's writing from a place where there's work, where there's building, where there's financial responsibilities, there's security concerns, there's family and relationship issues. But he's asking us to dig deeper, to, 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 to look at our motivations, and he's helping us to reorder our world. And so turn back to one, Psalm 127. And we're going to dig into to verse 1 and unpack all of this. Let's pray before, before we do that and ask for God's help again. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for your patience with us. Uh, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy uh, because we don't deserve them. And we don't deserve to sit here uh, and be your people. But we thank you that you, you love us. You've loved us far before we even loved you. You made a way for us to, to come close again. Uh, help that not to just become uh, real normal to us. Uh, help us to, to, to be in wonder of that. Uh, Spirit, we ask for your help again. Uh, we don't have the power, we don't have the strength to, to fully comprehend you. Uh, we need you to, to cause us uh, to look to you again. We ask that you would open these, these scriptures, Lord. You'd illuminate King Jesus in our lives again. Um, I don't believe that, that every uh, sermon we give from here, Lord, is going to be mind-blowing, we're all in tears, but I think that every time we open your word, Lord, you have something for us and you bless us. So help us to, uh, to receive from you this morning, God. You're good to us. You love us. Um, as is already prayed this morning, Lord, help, help me, help us to, to decrease, Lord, so that you can become bigger and bigger in our lives. Pray these things in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the psalmist is, 
He's helping us to reorder our lives, to reclaim that original order. And he begins in verse 1 by giving us a sample of this. And he, and he looks at, at everyday things, things that all of us will have in our lives. And he gives us two examples, which is work and security. Um, so um, each of us will, will, will work in our lives. And for in the, the psalmist here, it's building a house. Uh, each of us will have security concerns. Uh, for the psalmist here, it's, it's like a night watchman on guard. Uh, but for each of these things, the, the psalmist only sees two possibilities. And either it, it will be the Lord doing it, or it will be pointless. Okay, either it will be by the Lord's doing, or it will be pointless and meaningless. There's, those are the two options. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, well, the builders labor in vain. They, the watchman stays awake in vain. Um, that word is, it's not exactly uh, the same word as, as Hevel that we looked at in Ecclesiastes, uh, but it's, it's close. I think it's probably worse because it means uh, emptiness. There's no, it's an empty purpose. It's, it's meaningless. And note that he's, he's, not, uh, he's not dogging work here. Okay? He's not saying that, that work is bad. Um, he's not saying, well, don't work if there's no point to it. It, work is good, okay? It, the, the Bible begins with, with God himself working for six days. It, God even, he gives Adam a job. So in Genesis 2.15, he says, the Lord took the man, Adam, and he put him in the garden to work, to, to keep it. And we were created to work. And it, when you get to heaven, it's not going to be like a, just a, um, just enjoying yourself. It's, you're going to work. It's what you're created to do. Work is not a result of the fall, uh, toiling in work is, so to, what, what's to toil? It's, it's incessant labor, this, this working your finger to the bone, working like a dog. And the psalmist is saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build, they labor, they toil in vain. Their work is empty, it's meaningless, it's, it's, it's fruitless effort. And do you see the, the nuance here? That, that work is good, it's what you're created for, but work can also quite easily become meaningless. So what's the answer? Well, verse 2 tells us that to work even harder isn't the answer. It says, it's vain that you rise up early and go, to, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So it's pointless that, that you work so hard for your own gain, that this picture of a worker striving even harder, getting up before the sun, going to bed later than everyone else. They're eating the bread of anxious toil. There's this incessant labor again. Uh, the Hebrew word for anxious toil, it's a synonym for the, the, the same word that's used for the pain and the toil of Adam and Eve's work and childbearing in Genesis 3. So it's this, this result of, of, of the fall. This, your work has become meaningless. It's painful labors. This striking picture of someone anxiously laboring away, hardly sleeping, but all for nothing. And then he says at the end of verse 2, you finally get to some, some good news. Uh, he says, for he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. So all throughout the Bible, God has a lot to say between, uh, about uh, anxious toil and, and rest. Uh, and the most famous part is, is what Jesus says in, in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who, all who labor and, and are heavy laden. What does he say? He says, I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me. If you do this, then, uh, then you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my, my burden is light. Uh, even again, God gives us the example of rest in, in Genesis 2. So working for six days through the first chapter and then resting on the seventh day. And he says that that is for my beloved as well. Work hard, work in the proper way for my glory, with my strength, and then you'll have rest, you'll have sleep, not anxious toil. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Do you see how this passage is helping us to navigate the the nuance of what it means to work in the proper way? Uh, Because you'll work, okay? You were created to work, all of us will, but there's a particular way to work that has meaning and has purpose and it brings you rest but there's also a a way to work that's empty and meaningless and brings about anxious toil it's fruitless the psalmist is saying you've still got to work you've still got to guard the city there's still a house to build but you do it from a completely different perspective You, you you reorder your life you reorder your dreams and your goals. You, you, you keep an eye on the master's hand. Okay? You do it all in, in prayer and dependence on him. You remain sensitive to the urging and the leadings of the, of the Holy Spirit. You, you reevaluate your life from time to time. Okay? Am I, am I, you ask, am I doing what the Lord has me to do? Is this, is this for me? What are my motivations in this? And then you give him glory for any good and success that comes out of your life. Solomon, look at this great temple I built. No, it's, it's, it's for the Lord's glory. We, we reorder our lives by working for his glory, not ours. By working with his strength, not ours. And, and this is just, it's, it's just a sample of our whole lives, okay? So the macro, the larger point he's making is he's challenging us to, to realign our entire lives with God, to, to refocus on his glory and honor, to, to work as a representative of him for his glory, not ours. We search out his plan, not live according to our own. We ask him to work through us, to empower us, to strengthen us. We work for the purposes and with the backing of the king. The point of the first two verses is this. Life is about God. Your life is not ultimately about you. Your life is about him. It's not about your dreams and plans. It's about searching what his are and living in accordance with that. So the psalmist is calling us to reorder our lives to the one who created us for his glory. And that's when your life has any meaning, has any purpose, and has any fruit of sleep, of joy. When you go about working for your own glory, for your own purposes, by your own strength, he says in the end, it's vanity, it's meaningless. But when we work as representatives of him for his glory, for his strength, with his strength, then our lives have meaning and purpose, and he gives his children rest. Some translations have that as he, he, he gives to his beloved sleep. Uh, some of your Bibles might have it as he gives uh, to his beloved even in his sleep. Um, Spurgeon says that it, it doesn't really matter because it's, the meaning is much the same. And he writes, Those who the Lord loves are delivered from the fret and fume of life and take a sweet repose upon the bosom of the Lord. 
He rests them. He blesses them in their rest. Blesses them more in their resting than others in their moiling and toiling. Love that word, moiling. It's a good word. God is, God is sure to give the best to his beloved. And we see here that he gives them sleep. That is a lying aside of care, a forgetfulness of need, a quiet leaving of matters to God. This kind of sleep is better than riches and honor. And it's, it should remind you of Jesus sleeping in the boat with his disciples in the middle of the raging storm at sea. Like Jesus just knew he was in the Father's hands. The Father's got this under control. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be anxious. He's therefore so quiet in spirit that the billows actually just rocked him to sleep. (laughs) Does that describe your, your trust in the Lord? Or are you working anxiously, tirelessly for something else completely? Life is about God. And not only do we see that life is about him, but in the last three verses we see that life is from him. So not only does, does he build the house, he also fills the house. It's a good rhyme, wasn't it? So the, the first half is telling us that life is about God. The second half is telling us that life is from God. So what good is building a house if there isn't a family to dwell in it? What good is accumulating wealth if there isn't anyone to leave your riches to? Look at verse 3. It says, behold. Anytime the Bible says, behold, pay attention. This is really, really important. It says, behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. Now, now the wording of that sentence could mean two things. It could either mean that, uh, that children are given by the Lord, or it could mean that children belong to the Lord, a heritage of the Lord. And, but I think within the context of the whole Bible, we see that both of these things are true, and they both fit here. So firstly, children are given to us by the Lord. As you did... Do you know what a man and a woman have to do in order to conceive a child? Very, very little. Okay? Uh, do we have a part to play? Yes. But I don't know if anyone would call that work. Okay? We have an extremely small part to play in bringing a baby into the world. Men, even a smaller part. Women, I'll give you a little bit more. You know the, 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 the saying, this miracle of life, like it's 100% true. The Lord has, men and women, the Lord has a much bigger part to play in the, bringing a child into the world. Children are a miracle. Children are a gift in that way. And do you see how this goes along with the, the first two verses? Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord fills the house, they are a gift from the Lord. But also children belong to the Lord. Parents, if you have children, they are not your permanent possession. This is something Jenny and I have prayed over each of our three children. This prayer of, Lord, help us to remember that these children are not ours, but they're yours. We, we are their, their temporary mother and father. You are their forever father, their heavenly father, their real dad, their gift in this way. You're, you're their forever father. You're the one who, who knit them together. We didn't do that. You're the one who knows all their days. 
You're the one that knows their need. You're the one that will heal them when they're sick. You love them far more than we ever could. We try to tell our kids that as much as possible. So we ask the Lord to help us to love them, to help us to train them. We call them our temporary house guests. They're not ours forever. We need the Lord's guidance in how to do that. Do you see how this also fits well with unless the Lord builds the house? But whichever way you understand it, one thing is for certain here, and that's that children are a heritage. Uh, this word's often used in, in the Old Testament for an inheritance. So like the promised land that the, the people of Israel would inherit, this precious gift from the Lord. Spurgeon powerfully puts it like this, and it speaks to so many different areas in our, in our society. He says, where society is rightly ordered, children are regarded not as an encumbrance, but as an inheritance. They're received not with regret, but as a reward. Life is from God. And, and I don't want you to miss out on on something incredible about how the people of Israel specifically would have understood this verse. Because there's, there's, a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of general ways that we understand that children are a blessing. Um, so just in general, children represent the hope of the continuation of, of, of the human race. So they're a blessing in that way. If we stop having kids, we will go extinct. Um, children represent the hope of the continuation of, of certain family names. So we, we have kids, and they, they carry on our history, our story, our name. Uh, children represent the hope of the, the continuation of particular nations. So I think all of these things make sense. Have kids, and humans flourish. Family names go on. Nations are strengthened. Uh, but there's another kind of, uh, of hope and blessing that children bring that the people of Israel would have thought when they sung this. They sang these words, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Because for them, children represent the hope of a promised redeemer. So as they sang these words, this reward of the womb, they, they would have thought back to Genesis 3, 15, that says a child would redeem humanity. So in Genesis 3.15, this is just after the fall, just after that disordering, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his heel and, and he shall bruise your head. So, so here's this promise that God makes that he's going to bring a deliverer to, to, to deliver them from the curse of sin, to, to undo that chaos of the fall. But how is he going to bring the deliverer? He's going to bring the deliverer through the womb. So the, there's this understanding that, that the hope of mankind for them is connected with childbearing. Isn't that amazing perspective that, that they have? A, a redeemer has been promised to them through the nation of Israel. And how is this going to happen? Through the womb. So as you're going up to the temple, you're recognizing that the temple is not the be-all and end-all, but that God has promised a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to be born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. This is the promise that's, that's being held onto as they're singing these words. 
So every time a woman gives birth, there's a reminder that God is going to redeem us and that redemption is going to come from one born from a womb. Isn't that amazing? The fruit of the womb is a reward. When you understand it in those terms, wow. But for us, all these, all these things are true. So children are a heritage, a blessing, a reward. Yes, because they represent the, the hope of the continuation of the human race, of, of family names, of our nations. But when you understand it in those redemptive terms, that God loved us so much, that, that he, he so badly wanted to bring his children home, that he sent his own son to come and become one of us, that he clothed himself fully in our humanity. And there's, this, there's now this eternal physical connection between humans and God because one of the Godhead is now a human. Do you see how much dignity that places on us? How, how much dignity that, that, that's, places, that's placed on, on having children? Children are, are so important to God. They're part of his redemption of the world. So important in the Bible. They're a blessing and a gift. Uh, You can say that verses 1 and 2 are about building the house. Verse 3 is about filling the house. And verse 4 and 5 are about keeping the house. So look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of the warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, so children are uh, a heritage, they're an inheritance, this precious gift. And, and what do you do with a precious gift? You treasure it, you value it, you enjoy it, and, and you take care of it. So if children are a gift, how do we reorder our lives so that we treasure that gift from God? It's not easy. Um, I love this quote by Derek Kidner. He says, it's not atypical of God's gifts that at first they are liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. Love this line. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they become a quiverful. If children are a gift from God, how do we reorder our lives so that we treasure our gift? Well, we, we invest our energy in them. We, we love them. We, we do all we can to point them to Jesus. We do all we can to point them to their creator. We help them reorder their broken lives. We instruct them in his wise ways. And I love, I love this metaphor of them being like arrows. And because at the time, there, you didn't go down to like the arrow shop to buy more arrows. You, you had to make arrows. It was hard work. It took time. You had to whittle them down. You had to make sure they were straight, make sure they were well-balanced, make sure they were sharp. It took time and it took energy, but it was worth it because if you made a decent arrow, it was useful. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior or the children of one's youth. I love this picture of, of young parents training up children and then later in life, their children being there for them. In that last verse, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So the gate of the city at the time was the gathering place for the, for the elders and the judges who settled disputes and rendered judgments. It was, it was the courthouse at the time. 
And this picture of a man speaking with his enemies, unintimidated because he has his, his well-brought-up sons behind him. So children are, are a gift, and we're to take care of that gift, to raise them in the Lord. It's not easy. But remember, the, the reordering of our lives that we're meant to be doing, how this also goes along with the rest of the, uh, the, the, rest of the chapter, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Like we, we don't raise our children for our own glory or by our own strength. We, we ask him to help us. We need him to help us. We can't do it unless the Lord is working through us. Amen, parents? I hope you can see this theme of unless the Lord all throughout the psalm, and most importantly, in your life. We need to reorder our lives, refocus our lives off of ourself and back onto him, our creator. Work for his glory, work, for, work by his strength. Because life is about him and life is from him. Let's stand and pray. Uh, just before we, we take communion, uh, this, this should remind you of, of God's covenant that he made with David in, in 2 Samuel 7, where uh, David, he expressed this desire to build a house for the Lord, um, but the Lord turns it back on him, and the Lord tells him, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, in in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11, is this Davidic covenant, this, this covenant that God makes with David. And Nathan says to David, he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come, and he, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is talking about Solomon. Solomon's David's son. He's the one who will, the Lord will raise up. He will establish his throne. He will be the one to build the house. But it also, most importantly, points toward Jesus. That Jesus is the one whose, whose kingdom will be established forever and ever. That Jesus is the one who will build this house that will not fall. It should remind you, all of this should be really familiar to our church. We always talk about Jesus' promise to build his church, that he is the one who will make this place successful, that he is the one who will build a place that not even the gates of hell can prevail against. And he builds this house. He brings us close. He, he makes us brothers and sisters all through the cross, all through what we celebrate in this meal. This, this breaking the bread, that remem- reminding us that his body was broken, dipping it in the wine, reminding us that his, his blood was, was spilled out for us. Uh, Father, we love you so much. Uh, we just confess that, that um, our love for you is, is fickle. It comes and goes. We don't love you enough. 
the order of our lives is, is so often out of whack. And but we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending us your son to live a perfect life and to go to the cross for us, Lord, on our behalf and to take the punishment, not that he deserved, but that we deserved. And he takes his righteousness and he clothes it on us. So I thank you for your grace that although we get that order messed up so often, that your grace and your, your mercies are new every day. And so we, wanna, we, want, to, we want you to, to help us to reorder our lives again, Lord. Help us to, to, to fix our gaze on you, Jesus, the one who's enthroned in the heavens. So we look back to the cross again, Lord. We look back and remember all that you've done for us. We thank you for the rest that you give our souls. Lord, I pray for anyone here that, that doesn't have that rest. Lord, that today they would find that in you. Jesus, you are so good. You are the king of our lives. Your throne is established forever and ever. Um, we can't wait for heaven, Lord. We can't wait to, to sing with your people forever, to exalt your name forever. May you receive a lot of glory, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.